As Christians, we believe in an, an dynamic called temptation. Um, yeah, so we, we get tempted. And temptation uh, doesn't come from God. God doesn't tempt us. Temptation also doesn't come from ourselves, so we don't have to blame ourselves. But temptation comes from what you call the enemy. So the devil, Satan, evil spirits. So we are, we are frequently, if not constantly, tempted. It's really important to just be aware of that. Because when we're unaware, we, we become more susceptible. Now, uh, God tends to tempt you less to do bad things than to try to think things that aren't true. I'll say that again another way that's more clear because that wasn't that clear. Uh, the, the lion's share of temptation that comes against you is to get you to think things that aren't true. Uh, that's the original temptation. The original temptation with Adam and Eve was not to get them to do something. The original temptation was to get them to stop trusting God. So he wasn't, it wasn't about the fruit. He wasn't even trying to get them to eat the fruit. He was like, hey, why, is God, why is God telling you you can't eat any of the fruit? What's he trying to keep from you? And he tries to convince them that, that God doesn't really want what's best from you, for you, and, and he wants to take something and, and keep something from you. And if you really want to be happy, and you want to be fulfilled, and you want to be like God, then you've got to stop listening to his rules and do it on your own and, and get it for yourself. So notice, the first temptation is not about the fruit. It's about trying to break trust in God. I would argue that you are constantly tempted to believe that actually doing God's will in your life is going to be a disappointing, sad, tiresome thing. I think that a reason that we struggle with vocations is because there's really strong temptation that's like, if you, if you follow God's will, if that's to be a nun or a priest, you're just going to be like a sad church person and you're going to miss out on everything, right? Be a priest. It's like, no, that sounds lame. It's a weird idea of like, why are people becoming nuns? Like, who are those people? The people that become nuns, what's their deal? They're just like, well, I didn't get picked, so I guess I'll be a nun. <laughs> if, you, if you don't know, that's not how that works. Why am I saying all this? Because I think there's something in, in the gospel that happens today that it's not directly stated, but it just has to be true. And I'll get to that in a little bit. But here we have Jesus uh, beginning his ministry. And a promise that was promised many hundred years before, we heard it in the first reading, is being fulfilled. Do you know that God keeps his promises? Always. He's always faithful. So he made a promise that uh, a light, a great light would dawn in the land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, in Galilee of the Gentiles. All right, what does that mean? Israel is kind of a narrow country, runs north and south. In the middle of it is the Jordan River. At the northern part of the country is a sea called the Sea of Galilee. Sometimes it's called the Lake of Gennesaret. Um, it's got another name. Why am I blanking? Got another name. Sea of Galilee. Anyway. <laughs> I had a wedding earlier. I'm a little distracted. Okay, so in the north is the Sea of Galilee. Um, there's a river that flows down the whole thing. It's the Jordan River. And then empties into the Dead Sea. Just for kind of your bearings, down south, near, somewhat near the Dead Sea, is Jerusalem. That's the capital of Israel. Up north is Galilee. The whole region up north is called Galilee. That's where Jesus is from. Galilee is a very fruitful place. They, they raise a lot of crops. They get as much rain in Galilee as they do in Ireland. It's kind of crazy. I got to go there. When you get there, you're like, wow, it's green and lush and there's valleys and it's crazy. So anyway, 
Jesus is going to Galilee up north. That's where he grew up. Nazareth is in Galilee. And he goes to Capernaum. Capernaum's a little, a little town. It would have been a shore town on the north edge of the Sea of Galilee. So he's there at Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. What are those names? Those are names of tribes of Israel. Pop quiz, how many tribes were there in Israel? Anybody know? Twelve. That's important. There's twelve tribes. These are the two northernmost tribes. These would have been the tribes that were first conquered by the Assyrians. So they're the first ones to suffer this invasion of, this, this, of these other nations. Eventually, all of the tribes of Israel get conquered, but they were the first two. So the place of darkness and gloom is the place that was conquered first. But it says there, in that place of darkness and gloom, a great light is going to shine. So that starts here in our gospel with Jesus. It says he goes there to the north, to Capernaum, to the land of Galilee, that what had been said through the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in a land overshadowed by death, a light has arisen. So Jesus' arrival is depicted as the dawning of a great light. If you haven't heard the news, Jesus is God and he's come to save the world. But it's interesting that he comes to save the world and how does it begin? It begins in very simple ways by inviting specific people into friendship and companionship with him. As it turns out, that plan has not changed, never once. That's still the plan. The whole plan of salvation for the entire world is for Jesus to invite you to be his friend and closest companion, to be his lover, to be his uh, delight and his joy, and to enter into a relationship with you. But it says Jesus comes, he's preaching the kingdom. Why can he preach the kingdom? Because he's the king. So the kingdom of heaven is at hand because the king has come, because God himself has come. Also, that's a great phrase, the kingdom is at hand. What does it mean when something is at hand? That means you don't have to get out of your chair to reach it. It means it's like it's right here somewhere. The kingdom of heaven, it's, he's saying it's, it's right here. It's really, really close. Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. So let's remember for a moment, this is the Bible, but this is just reality. This is Jesus on a specific day. These are real people, okay? So we've got to take our Bible goggles off and realize like, oh, this is, this is kind of crazy what's about to happen. Jesus is walking along, and he sees these two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They're fishermen, and at this time they're using a cast net. So they're casting a net into the sea. The word that he says, that says he saw them also kind of implies that he just watched them. There's something about them he just like saw as really good. Just a couple brothers just doing their work. And he saw them as very good. And something stirred in his heart. We're not sure what, but something really moved in Jesus. We also know that Jesus never does anything apart from the Father. So he only says what the Father t wants him to say, and he only does what the Father tells him to do. So it's possible that in that moment, as he's just watching them, he's talking to the Father, and he sees them as really good, and there's a desire in him that, that they would just be his, his friends. It's a vulnerable moment to want somebody to be your friend, yeah? And you remember when you were a kid, and you asked somebody, like, do you want to be my friend? Like, ooh, it's kind of scary. When we, when we grow up, eventually we take ourselves so seriously that, like, we stop making friends, right? A lot of you, you know, it's like, I'm not going to, I don't need friends. Well, you do, but it's scary. It's hard to make a friend. 
But Jesus sees them as good, and, and he wants their life to be in his life and his life to be in their life. And so he says to them, come after me, and I will make you fishers of men. The next two words are, at once. At once, they left their nets, and they followed him. Something's going on there. We'll come right back to it. They walk a little farther. Now he's got his buddies with him. He says he sees two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They're in the boat with their dad, mending their nets. It says he called them, and immediately they left their boat and they followed him. At once, immediately. What's going on? Like, this is crazy behavior. Please remember, yes, it's in the Bible, but these are normal people. What, what's happening? I don't think that Peter and, and Andrew and James and John are just so riddled by guilt that they're like, oh, man, I better do what God says because I'm so bad. And you don't get that sense, do you? You get the sense that there is an explosion of joy taking place. The only thing that would enable them to just leave behind everything at once is joy. Immense joy. I'm going to bring you back to the first reading. First reading is talking about this moment when salvation is dawning on this land. This is what's happening in Jesus. It says the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, a light is going to shine. It says the darkness have seen a great light. Upon those who dwelt in the land of gloom, a light has shone. You have brought them abundant joy and great rejoicing. Not just rejoicing, great rejoicing. As they rejoice before you as at the harvest. As people make when There's something about Jesus, the way that he looks at them, something about his voice. We don't know what. But there's something about Jesus coming close to them and choosing them that makes their hearts explode with joy. And they just leave everything. When Jesus first goes to the synagogue, says this is from the Gospel of Mark, he shows up and a demon cries out. He says, what, what have you to do with us, Jesus, son of Nazareth? For I know who you are. Have you come to destroy us? We're tempted to believe that Jesus comes to hurt us, to take something away, to make life miserable, to just make it hard. Now you've got to take up your cross and follow him. And we hear that, and that, that sounds like, oh, Jesus just wants to make me suffer. No. No, you're already suffering. But Jesus wants to take your cross and unite it to his cross to make it love and to permeate everything with joy. The joy of knowing that you're not alone, that you're really good, that you're chosen, that you're loved that something great waits for you. Jesus brings joy. I can promise you that. Why am I a priest here today? It's because of joy, more than anything else. Because I met God, and there was so much joy that I said to God, God, if this is how it works, you can have everything. Celibacy doesn't make any sense. It's a weird thing, yeah? It's just strange. But it wouldn't make sense unless there was just somehow involved just deep, profound, intense love and joy. Okay? God has called me to himself in a particular way, and it has brought joy to my life. I remember being in college as I was just starting to sense this call, 
and I looked at the trees. I've told you this story before. I just looked at the trees. It was fall, and I said, did somebody turn the colors up? Like the world just felt more vibrant. And why? The only thing that had changed was that God was coming in. I was allowing him to come close. I was doing a bunch of things that seemed lame to me before. I was starting to pray. Ugh. It's like reading the Bible some. I went to confession like a dope. <laughs> and I was just astonished to find like everything just brought joy. The temptation was what? What does the tempter say? That stuff's boring. Entertain yourself. That's the only way to be happy is to find entertainment. Entertainment doesn't actually make you joyful. It makes you happy for a bit, and there's nothing wrong with it. But if we look for that to fulfill the deep longings of our hearts, like it's not going to cut it. The prophet Isaiah continues on. After he talks about this abundant joy that Jesus is going to bring, he also says this. Is this the way you think of Jesus? It says, For the yoke that burdened them, and the pole on their shoulder, and the rod of their taskmaster you have smashed. Jesus doesn't come to burden you. He doesn't come to make life harder. He comes to set you free. This is a strange paradox. In allowing Jesus to be the master of our life, in becoming obedient to, set, to him, is actually the only way we get set free. Because otherwise, we are under the burden of our sins, of our idolatry, of our fears. Idols are terrible, terrible, terrible taskmasters. What do I mean by that? If you idolize money, that means you think that money is going to make you safe and give you joy. But money just makes you a slave because you'll never have enough. It makes you insecure because you're afraid of how much is coming in and how much is going out and where it is. If you use popularity as your idol, you think like, if I'm popular, then I'll be safe, then I'll be good. Guess what? You have to be constantly concerned about what everybody is thinking of you all the time. It's a terrible burden. It's a terrible idol. It's a, it's a harsh taskmaster. Jesus comes to take his place as the rightful king of our lives, as our rightful master, but when he does it, he sets us free and he gives us joy. So the only thing that makes sense of what's going on with Peter and Andrew and James and John, especially James and John, they're with their dad. It seems like they fish together. This is their livelihood. Um, but Jesus comes and he says, hey, come with me. And they just explode in joy. You wonder, too, even what happened in the, in the heart of, of Zebedee, their dad. Because I kind of imagine he's like, hey, hey, <laughs> those are my kids, you know? But what if he sees Jesus and his beauty and goodness and hears them calling his sons and he just rejoices with great pride? And he's like, yeah, go. And immediately they go. If you and I don't think of Jesus as somebody who comes to bring joy, we don't know him. It's a fact. If we don't think of him as somebody who comes to give life, to make you more alive than you are now, then we don't know him. We've fallen into the temptation of thinking that he's cruel or harsh or sad or disappointing or something. Jesus knows you. He made you. He shaped you in your mother's womb. He knows everything about you. He knows your heart. He knows what makes it come alive. And he wants to give you everything. Everything, everything. And the everything that you and I actually desire is him. He comes to give you himself. To make you alive. To make you totally you. But you raised to the highest pitch, filled with the life of God. He comes to bring you joy. I'd like you to spend some time with Jesus now in prayer and ask him to give you more joy.
Jesus, please fill my life with joy, with your joy. Show me that you come to bring life. You come to bring joy. You come to make me even more alive. Jesus, give me your joy.